There are many ways to travel around the world, but what is so specifically glorious about the road trip? The romance of hitting the wide open road has sparked the imaginations of writers and directors since the dawn of the highway. The journeys might take longer than in a plane or a train, but in your car, restrictions are lifted. You can take wrong turns that turn out to be the right ones, meet weird and wonderful folk, and get up close and personal with your surroundings. You might have a destination in mind, or maybe you just want to see where the ride takes you. Maybe an unexpected twist in the road or the story will lead you to places you've never otherwise explored. You're listening to The Road Ahead in association with Audi. In each episode, we'll be exploring different paths around the world across four different continents. This week... It's, it's paradise. It's not for everybody, for sure. But I would give it a try and definitely come and visit, you know, anytime. Make the trip. It's always worth the journey. We're in Scotland. The route will be traversing the highlands, starting in Inverness and ending up on the Isle of Skye. We'll be exploring what this majestic island has to offer. The journey we're taking today is famous for its dramatic landscapes, from the large lochs that may or may not be inhabited by mythical monsters, to the hills that tumble over each other to make way for snow-capped mountains, if you're in the right season. We're here in the autumn and the colour palette is rich. Flashes of crimson, copper, amber, russet, vibrant mustard yellow mountains become bare mauve forests as you twist through corners, and the blue of that water, well, it's pretty darn blue. Scotland is known for its myths and legends. Whether it's kings, fairies or monsters, the Highlands are rich with stories. To get us in the mood for this trip, we enlisted the help of local Inverness guide Andrew MacDonald. He picked us up in his tour taxi before we hit the road ourselves to explain a bit about these mysterious tales. Inver is a the Gal is a corruption of a, a Gaelic word Inaber and means at the mouth of. So it features in all the Gaelic, you know, all the Celtic countries, Ireland and so Inverness means at the mouth of the Ness and Gary at the mouth of the Gary. So the, the River Ness here was the, um, the, the very first sighting of the Loch Ness monster, so called. Uh, Saint Columba and his followers brought Christianity to the Highlands, and uh, one of his servants was apparently attacked by a sea serpent. But that was in the River Ness, not in the Loch. So uh, ever since, there's been multiple sightings of the beastie. <laughs> one would imagine there must be two of them if they're still in the go. <laughs> All these thousands of years later. If you go down by Loch Ness, your first uh, 20 miles will be, uh, well, 16 of them will be along the side of Loch Ness. And you'll very easily see that the whole of the Great Glen is a geological fault line. And it was caused by, at one time, Scotland was actually uh, joined to the North American continent. And the uh, tectonic plates moved and Scotland floated away and collided with England and some would say we've been trying to detach ourselves ever since. <laughs> the lochs at Loch Ness, Loch Oich, Loch Long, Loch Linney uh, were joined by Thomas Telford 
uh, but with 26 miles of canal giving a navigable channel from the North Sea to the Atlantic which is very significant for, for fishing boats and small craft because the, going through between Orkney and the mainland uh, that stretch of water is the Pentland Firth and uh, it's uh, one of the most dangerous stretches of water in the world. There's nine currents meet there because the North Sea and the Atlantic meet and almost a Bermuda Triangle, you know, yeah. there, there was a, um, a boat loaded with concrete just a few years ago, just disappeared. Uh, obviously the, the weather and the weight, the, you know, the thing, there's been no sign of it or the, the people. But then back in the day, um, there was no road network as such, and the locks were the highway because many of the clans, including my clan, were, are descended from the Vikings. Uh, Summerled, the, the Viking chief, had three sons, Donald, Dougal and Ronald. So if you're, you're maybe aware that the prefix Mac means son of, so MacDonald is son of Donald, um, MacDougall is son of Dougal and so on. Uh, and these people were used to using the Viking galleys, but they developed a, a different boat, which was a, called a Berlin. But it looked like a miniature galley, and they're the either 50 or 100 oarsmen in a single sail. So when there was no road network, they used the locks as the road network, and when they got the end of a lock, they carried the boat to the next one. Fairly able fellows. Fairly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, on one occasion apparently they carried the whole of the Highland Navy over the Pass of Brander in Argyll in wintertime. Right. So it doesn't bear thinking about it. We'll hear more from Andrew a little later on, but right now he's got us in the mood to jump in our car and get driving. Two hours and 14 minutes away from where we're staying. The sound of the lapping water you can hear is the sound of Loch Ness. We can see some coppery shallows here on the southeastern side. We've taken, never decide what the high road and the low road is. Um, the most pretty road, it's a single track road. We're just south of Foyers, having started at Dores. Um, and we're heading towards Skye. We've taken an opportunity to jump out of the car while it's relatively fortuitous, the weather, and dry. And of course, we're looking for a monster. Who isn't looking for a monster when they're standing on the banks of this famous loch, the most famous in the world, maybe the most famous body of water in the world with one very dubious resident. Most people come here searching for Nessie or just looking for beautiful countryside and good food and beautiful views through the late summer and they have to fight off a thousand midges. We're here in autumn and the colours couldn't be more beautiful. It's a wonderful time that this road sort of comes into its own perhaps at this time of year because it's quiet. Um, you can drive, you can see the view, and we head into it, into the mouth of the loch. And you're seeing you're your journeying to Skye, and some of the oldest rock in the world is in the north end of Skye, uh, where the Jurassic rock has forced its way through the sandstone, leaving, uh, for all the world, pleats like the kilt. And uh, maybe on your agenda is the kilt rock. Yeah. 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 That's on the Trotternish Peninsula, so, and dinosaur footprints are found in the Kerang there as well. 
and we're looking out over the Kyle of Loch Alsh, and we're just shy of the of the Sky Bridge. We can see some tugs and some fishing boats, some salmon nets in the loch. We're looking out over the bridge that only recently has linked uh, Sky to the mainland of Scotland. It was a ferry, then it was a train, then it was a number of ways of <laughs> of getting over uh, of getting over the water. And we look at the uh, the dotted white houses of Kyle Eakin. Is that blue sky in the distance? After a breathtaking cross-country journey, we arrive, shaking the rain from our hair, on the southeast of Skye, where its bridge takes us from the highlands to the islands. Here our landscape changes. Fewer trees, the land stretches further, not flat but not as rollingly mountainous, though that will surely change again soon. Heather bristles in the wind, playing tricks on you. Everything feels alive. After half a day of driving, we arrive hungry. Some cullen skink, that smoky fish soup to you and I, eaten by a roaring fire in a local pub, will soon fix that. Day two, and after an early start that seems to be toing and froing between torrential rain and glorious sunshine, it's time to get back on the road to head up island. Today we're driving north along the incredible east coast of Skye. We'll pass famous sites such as the Kerrang and the Old Man of Store. We'll fly by dinosaur footprints and watch seals, dolphins and whales sing and swim off the coast. We're heading up to meet Katie Tan, an English artist and marine conservationist who moved to Skye four years ago after falling for its wilderness. And you join us in Katie's studio pretty much near the north of the sky, and we can hear the wind chasing down the chimney in here. We're surrounded by your beautiful blue artworks and all sorts of bones and paraphernalia. It's the epitome of an artist's studio. Is the work you're making here, is it completely riffing off your idea of sky, what you see out the window, what you see in the sea and things? Completely, I'd say. When I first moved up here, I was a uh, military portrait painter. So I came up drawing people, horses, and I, I found that I spent my whole time kind of looking at the back wall, looking at a canvas, just drawing that. And I thought, you know, I need to, in some way, kind of connect my love of the ocean and marine conservation and... Kind of through a little bit of experimenting, I kind of turned away from portraiture, and uh, this is this is where I ended up. It's inspired by when you look down into the ocean and you see kind of a patch of white sand, and it makes everything really luminous. Or if you look up at the night sky and you just get the, the clear Milky Way and stuff like that. So um, I guess if I moved inland, if I moved into like the highlands of forestry area, I'd probably end up doing green things and kind of reds and golds of heather and stuff. So uh, yeah, no, it's definitely definitely uh, part of being here. We can say that you're a kind of connoisseur of the place in which you live because you, because people will notice that you haven't got the, the Sky accent, the Highland accent, the Scottish accent at all, in fact. Um, you moved up here because you fell in love with the place. So tell us how that happened. You've been here for a few years. It's, a, it's an unusual, windy, beautiful spot here. Wouldn't be everyone's cup of tea. Um, tell us about your journey up here. I hadn't intended to stay up here. It was supposed to be a six-month break from London. I thought I'd come up maybe close the windows, put a fire on, get a good book, do some writing. And then once I'd done a winter, I thought, well, I'll just see it for a little bit longer. And then after a summer, I thought, well, I'll just do one more winter. And I think it, it's just home really now. And uh, it's, it's different, but you get used to it. And I think it sounds really cheesy, but you've got to work out what you like and what makes you happy and then get close to it. And for me, it's being by the wildlife, being by the sea, being able to swim and, uh, and make my art up it. 
Um, tell us about the swimming. How did you get? Has that been something you've always done, or did you get into it through being on Sky or being up in Scotland? How did that start? I'm not sure, really. I think there's something about maybe it's because the water up here is so clear that you see it, and there's just a you just think I need to get in that. And I mean, it, it is absolutely freezing, but uh, <laughs> but you one one of my rules of life is that you never feel bad after a cold water swim. You never regret it. You just you just feel so invigorated by it. And I wanted to ask you about this because you're in, involved in more ways than one with your art and some of the inspiration for that is obviously the landscape, the wildlife and part of the reason you moved up here. But also you work with marine conservation mm -hmm. in quite a hands-on way occasionally when it's, when it's needed. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, about how many how many people it takes to lift a, a, a seal pup or a whale and, and put them back in the sea with their mother, with their pod or whatever. Mm -hmm. I started volunteering with a charity that you call if anything washes up on the beach or if you get a sick seal, if you get a stranded dolphin. So I'm a marine mammal medic with them and that's, as you say, kind of lifting things back into the sea, although it's a lot more complicated than that. Porpoises, they're quite small, you know, they're like, mm. I don't know, size of a toddler. They're, they're quite easy, you can kind of put them under an arm and put them back out. The pilot whale's not quite the same, but, uh, <laughs> but we do things like that. I do beach cleans, organising beach cleans and talking in schools about stuff. Because obviously we're really connected to the sea here. There's so much coastline that, I mean, you, you go for a walk and you see the rubbish or you stand on top of a cliff and you see the whales. So it's nice to be right in the thick of it. But you also see how much needs changing and actually how precious and how delicate stuff is at the same time. It's quite, it can be quite a, uh, I don't know, quite an emotional process. But they're amazing animals to work with. We don't have any means to calm them down apart from our own kind of voices and keeping calm. So you're all very quiet around the whales yeah. and you have to sing to them and be very gentle. And they really respond well to female voices and talking, which is beautiful, but also incredibly heartbreaking because it just shows that they're very aware. I, I say that they're that you have to be very careful around them with their tails thrashing, but they're also very aware that you're helping them, which is um, it's a pretty moving and special, special thing to experience. I don't think I'll ever forget the first time that I started talking to a whale and it opened its eye and just looked at me. Like that recognition and that registering was just, yeah, heartbreaking as well. We end our journey in Steen, a small coastal town where we find the island's only Michelin-starred restaurant the Loch Bay. The place is run by Michael Smith, a Highland chef who returned to the north to escape the fast-paced life of London kitchens. Smith is getting back in touch with nature, ingredients, and of course, the fishermen. So all of the food you're finding, hopefully, in any of the establishments on Sky, for one, it's coming straight from where it's been caught, where it's been grown. Yeah. The irony is, if we want to have prawns or lobster, we phone the boats up directly, and we speak to the fishermen who are actually physically catching them with their own bare hands. Yeah. When we season that with some lemon, we have to order the lemons three days in advance. <laughs> so that's the irony, but hey, sometimes you can eat lobster and prawns without lemon, so it's not, uh, it's not too much a big deal. So it's not too much for drag, but you haven't got too many lemon groves here on Sky, or, or am, I gonna, am I gonna be slapped in the face with no, a we, fact here? No, no, we don't. <laughs> We have a multitude of, uh, of micro-growers who grow wonderful herbs, yeah. lettuce. If we could grow lemons, for sure we would grow them, right? But yeah. Uh, yeah. there's a huge diversity of stuff that's available. But the, the key is the freshness and the terroir. It's the, it's the environment in which those things have been growing in naturally. So it's yeah. the wilderness. And how do you, when you start off, when you start off doing this, 
being a chef and then being a being a chef with your name over the door like yourself how do you how do you start those relationships with the fishermen with the growers all the rest of it is that the toughest thing to keep going because the cooking is tough t- tough enough as it is keeping a menu keeping people interested doing all the things that kind of keep this a real a famous and going concern but what about those little relationships and the, the always the undersung thing about i presume being a chef in a kitchen keeping those relationships going well establishing them you're absolutely right yeah. establishing those relationships is key so you want to identify people of a like mind. They are respectful of the environment. They're respectful of nature. Uh, when I first came to Sky, you, you, you suddenly get introduced to people who are fishermen who have been here for maybe two or three generations. So um, maybe making them in the pubs quite a good start. Yeah. <laughs> Buying them a few pints, yeah. uh, maybe a couple of drums. Yeah. Uh, but there's a general respect for the environment. I think that's the, the entry to, to any conversation with suppliers and, and chefs, for example. Once you establish those relationships, like I have with um, my lobster fisherman, who's just right out the front of the restaurant here, the lads in Dunvegan who fish out of boats, they're three generations of fishermen uh, for prawns, for crab, for uh, oysters, and all those wonderful things. We speak with each other literally day by day. You need to feel as if you can phone up Kevin on the prawn boat tomorrow, yeah. a grumpy prawn fisherman who's been out all week <laughs> in a hurricane and say, I need another dispatch of prawns, please. You need to go out in the perfect storm to get prawns for us to cook for our customers. Well, probably he'll just turn around and say, right, you need to buy me an extra couple of pints in the pub tomorrow night. Yeah, okay. That's good. That's, that's That's a kind of good bribery-based business process, which I'm glad still exists and that's, we're proud to fly the flag for. That's business. That's, business. that's just yeah. purely business. It is, it is. But it's genuine. Yeah. That is what happens. Yeah. What are the regulars on your menu that, are, that, that kind of showcase Sky's fauna and flora and, and, and kind of seafood then? Anything that's caught by the boats that are harboured here on Sky, we always try and have those all the time in the menu. So we have one menu specifically for the indigenous seafood of Skye, because it's the best in the world. Yeah. The other menu we have, we try and incorporate as many of the um, wild produce that's available. So that's the game, the deer, the venison, any of the game birds when they're in season, mallard, um, all of those things. We want to represent, without sounding too uh, pretentious, the wilderness, the nature's bounty is what we always try and have on the menu here. And you're you're at the end of a long road here in Steen. Your restaurant's got such a simple name. It's in such a beautiful place. Part of you is difficult to find. Part of it that must work very well in your favour. There is there is some great satisfaction at at the end of a long road having the most wonderful supper. Does that work in favour for you? Do you sometimes scratch your head and think, ah, you know, I need to be able to do more or be closer to this, that, and the other, or or what? Well, I'm very fortunate that. We've been on the island 13 years. We go and access culture, let's call it civilization in inverted commas, uh, in somewhere like London or a major city in Europe or anywhere in the world. We can go there for a weekend. And then after that couple of days or three or four days, we feel as we feel a yearning to go, well, do you know what? We really need to go back, back to the space, back to the wilderness. We need some peace, we need some, we need some head space. If you enjoy living that existence, it's, it's, it is paradise. It's not for everybody, for sure. But I would give it a try. And definitely come and visit, you know, anytime. Make the trip. It's always worth the journey.
What beauty the Highlands have given. You could drive around for days and never be bored by the changing colours, jagged edges and dramatic weather this place has to offer. An island ever-changing under scudding clouds, singing sun, horizontal rain and waterfalls that burst out from the mountain's very seams. Because the place is wild, the hospitality is that much warmer, or seems it. Sky makes for hardiness, but sky makes for friendliness too. That brings us to the end of another journey. On the next episode of The Road Ahead, we'll be taking the Shoreline Highway up the coast from San Francisco, a trip that you'll soon be able to make with the all-electric Audi e-tron. The Road Ahead is made in association with Audi. The series producer is Holly Fisher and executive producer is Tom Edwards. This episode was produced and edited by Holly Fisher and I've been Robert Bounds. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.